Thank you, Taylor. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 1. We are starting a series right now in um, the Old Testament. We uh, just making some observations. We thought, well, we're a little light in Old Testament, so we're going to do maybe 28 to 30 weeks in the Old Testament of kind of the main, the main sections of this two-thirds of the Bible. Jesus just called the Scripture. He didn't call it the Old Testament. He just called it the Bible. And so we want to, we're going to walk through that from now until roughly the end of June. Uh, sort of the major portions, but during Advent, the first four weeks are going to be pages one through three of the Bible, basically. Today, we're going to look at creation. Uh, next week, we'll look at the image of God in man, and then uh, the fall into sin, and then redemption. Uh, so creation, image of God, fall, and redemption. Uh, so here we're going we're gonna to read Genesis chapter one this morning. Oftentimes, I have somebody else read when I preach, but I want to read this because I want to draw your attention to the elevated nature of the language in Genesis 1. I've done that kind of by underlining some things and making some things in red and some things bolded. And um, So we're just going to go through here, and I'll just, I'm not going to stop and say it, but I'll just try to read it sort of the same way. It's just letting us know that this isn't actually normal type of language here. This is elevated uh, prose, as we might say. And uh, I would encourage you to follow along because it is quite long. It might compete for one of the longer readings we've had here before a sermon, but uh, let this be an encouragement to you, and we'll talk about this in a moment, but this was originally given to a people who had been enslaved and didn't know which way was up. This is the earliest revelation they had, and so this was actually good news to, a people, uh, of, to the people of Israel who were coming out of slavery in Egypt, and perhaps if you're here today wondering, what is the nature of the power of the God I serve? Is he personal? Does he delight in things? Does he love his creation? May this be good news for you as well. If you will follow along as I read from Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, a first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening. And there was morning a second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning a third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. 
And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning a fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I do not believe in God. I believe in science. That is the very first conversation I had with my across-the-street neighbor when I moved in several years ago. He asked me what I did for a living. I said I was a pastor, and that was literally the first thing he said to me. I wasn't even asking, you know. I was just asking where the lawnmower was, you know, that I could borrow. His wife said I could borrow it. Um, I don't believe in God, I believe in science. I said, oh, that's great. I was a physics major for a while until Calc 3 ran me out of physics. But uh, I love science because God believes in science too. He actually created it. So if you could tell me, uh, what's your objection? And then he walked me through basically what I just read to you. And uh, I asked him, if you were wrong, would you want to know? And we had a fruitful conversation, kind of fruitful ongoing. Uh, and in truth, I think he got both the science and the text wrong, but he was right about one thing, that in our day and age, what I just read to you is at odds with a prevailing view of how the world is. And 
Uh, there, so you have this contention oftentimes between science and Scripture. And I don't think it's necessary. And I just want to explore a couple avenues today why I think it's not necessary. This is not going to be, uh, normally we, we read a portion of Scripture, dive in, exegete it, uh, you know, explain it, illustrate it, and apply it to your life. Well, there's way too many verses to do that. We'd be here till Tuesday morning, so we're not going to do that. This is sort of a flyover, back up, and I really, my hope is that we can read Genesis 1 on the other side of this with a little more depth, a little more, uh, you know, a little more dimensionality. And I have to confess some trepidation about what I'm about to say, to be honest with you, because there is uh, contention in the body of Christ about this as well, right? So uh, sometimes, you know, I came out of a background actually in part that used this text as sort of a litmus test of whether you were really believing the Bible or not, right? And so I, that may be where some of you are. I'm, I'm not really there uh, at this point, but I, I do want to... Um, as always, like, we want to entertain questions and conversation afterward. And uh, for Taylor's sake and mine, too, I will make one request. Don't send us any articles. Like, we're not going to read them. <laughs> Please, don't send us any articles. Um, I said jokingly in the first service, look, just because you have a doctor in front of your name doesn't necessarily mean anything, right? I know. I've got a doctor in front of my name. It doesn't mean anything, right? It's just like somebody sat down longer than somebody else. It doesn't need, mean anything, really. Um, if you want... Here's what I'd love for you to do. you got an article that you love. Read it, digest it, understand it, and let's have a conversation. Right? That's, that would be great. So um, I want to start by just saying it's, it's common for us. Probably we've all done this this week. Hey, Siri. Right? And then, yes, right? How old is Matthew McConaughey? Matthew McConaughey was born 52 years ago. Okay. So, Matthew, those abs are 52, year old, 52 years old now, right? So, um, so, we're used to taking Siri out and asking a question, and I'm going to put Siri on airplane mode now, uh, and Siri will respond to us with an answer to that question. Sometimes it's the right answer, sometimes it's a wrong answer, sometimes it's a range of answers that we get to pick from, but what's always happening is we're in control of the questions being asked. Hey, Siri, let me know this. Hey, Siri, let me know that. Hey, Siri. And if we do that when we come to Scripture, if we just say we're going to ask any question and demand it answer us with the way we want or a range of questions, we're going to miss sometimes what the Scripture says. I'm not saying that we can't ask hard questions of the Bible, but sometimes we have to have enough discipline to know that it's not answering the questions that we're asking. And if we demand it give us answers to questions it's not answering, we will miss what it's actually saying. Sometimes we have to let the Bible set the agenda on the questions we should be asking about it. So uh, if we come with an expectation to Scripture that's going to answer every question that we have as we construct it, we may miss it. We have to read the Bible more carefully than that. So I want to do a little basic Bible one-on-one -on -one Bible reading when it comes to Genesis 1. And just start by saying this, Genesis 1 is not written to us. Now, it's written for us as the people of God. It's not written to you. It's not written to me. And like any inspired scripture, when we come to it, we have to say, well, who wrote this? To whom was it written? And what was the context? That's very normal interpreting the scripture. But sometimes, and Genesis 1 is one of these places, we come to it and we just forget how to read the Bible. So here's, here's my contention here at the top of your insert. Genesis is God, it's supposed to be the word inspired, it's just a typo. God inspired scripture written by Moses to Israel in the wilderness. 
Right? God, uh, Genesis is God-inspired scripture written by Moses to Israel in the wilderness. The Spirit of God inspired Moses to write Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and most of Deuteronomy until the very end where Moses is dead and somebody else picks it up and does it. But um, this is not written to 21st century Americans with a scientific worldview. Not because God doesn't understand science. It's because these guys didn't understand science like we understand science. And he's not talking to us. He's talking first to them. It's written to a people who had been enslaved for a few hundred years, who were brutalized, who were treated terribly, who, were, who had to work day after day after day after week after month after year with no rest at all. It's written to a people that, taught, that were taught that there is a God and his name is Pharaoh. And he is the image of God, and he is the only image of God, right? So this is, this is the people to whom this were written. It's a people who are now on their own in some way with the Lord in the desert, surrounded by enemies, head into a land that they weren't quite sure about. Uh, it's a people who lived in a, in a world of competing worldviews, right? A world of what historians would call cosmologies. Anybody heard the word cosmology before? Okay. A cosmology is just a, a story about the way things are. It's, a, it's a, the ultimate story about the way things are. And we know some of them that were in the existence of this first group of people. And you have the Egyptian, the Egyptian creation myths. You have, and some of you have heard of these, right, the, the Epic of Gilgamesh. Some of you are forced to slog through the Epic of Gilgamesh, right, the Enuma Elish. These are, these are uh, Babylonian and Sumerian, Mesopotamian uh, cosmologies. Uh, and, an, and a modern cosmology, if we were talking about a modern cosmology, it would be very concerned with the origin of material things and how things came to be and all the processes uh, and the, the ways these things came into being and how they developed. So it a secular, materialist co current cosmology would be something like, and I'm going to be totally crass, right? Um, everything came from nothing, but we don't know how, and then it moved from complete disorder to order. Also, not, not quite sure the mechanisms of how that is, but here it is, right? So it came, it arose from nowhere, and it, pro and it progressed uh, through however, and, and here we are. And I'm being... We can talk about that later, but I'm, I'm being a little bit facetious to show the, the barrenness of it. Ancient cosmologies were not concerned about the origin of material things. Just, they weren't talking about that. They were more concerned about questions like, what are the gods like or what is God like? How is this world structured and what is my role in these, the major worldview questions? So why am I telling you this? Genesis 1 is the biblical for lack of a better word, cosmology. And it is, as uh, we often quote Michael Goheen here, who wrote the book, The Light to the Nations and the Drama of Scripture. He says that Genesis 1 is, it's warfare, it's a, it's a warfare text. It's doing battle, and, and it's doing battle with these other cosmologies. Because you think about, well, those ultimate stories are shaping the people of God. If, you went to, if you've gone to university and been under the tutelage of somebody with that materialist, secular cosmology, you've been shaped by that. And you realize that's, that's doing battle against this biblical worldview. And so it's still, you know, uh, doing battle with a, a cosmology of a sort. That's what was happening. The people, they, 
They they had a fragmented past. They were in slavery. They're led out. They're given a new story, and it starts with this. Here's the big picture of the way things are. Uh, And so sometimes if you go to a university class or something, you do some comparative literature uh, with the Bible, you're, oh, we'll read the uh, Enuma Elish alongside the Bible, the Egyptian myths, and we'll see, oh, there's some overlap. And inevitably what happens if you don't have a sort of a believing teacher, he or she will say, well, there's overlap because they just really borrow from each other. It's really the same stuff, and it really all is is the same stuff. Um, I would contend, I think the Scripture would contend, there is overlap. The Bible does overlap with some of those stories enough to enter into them and blow them up to reshape the worldview of the people of God. So it's doing, it's, it's actually having conversations and dialogue, warfare dialogue with these other things that might be shaping God's people back 1500 B.C., 2000 B.C. For instance, the Egyptian creation myth, anybody know the uh, name of the Egyptian sun god? Ra. Yeah, you've seen The Mummy, the movie with Amun-Ra, right? So, but before he was Ra, that's an evolved status of the sun god who was Atum, who evolved out of the waters. And then he kept evolved. So he was, he was uh, not uncreated. He was self-created out of the waters. And then he evolved into the sun god Ra, and he created goddesses of air, Shu, moisture, Tefnut, sky, Newt, and earth, Gabe. All these goddesses, they, they worked in concert to, to make sure things went well. And you had to appease the god and the goddesses. And if you did that, things would go well with you, right? And then the, creation of Gen- the Genesis creation account comes in and the Lord is reminding them, oh, no, no, I existed apart from all of this. I am self-existent before the waters. I didn't evolve out of the waters. Um, I'm the uncreated creator. I I created the sun. It's not a God. In fact, when you go to verse, is it 16? I didn't write this in here. Oh, yeah, it's 16. It's so great. Uh, It said, God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day. Hebrew has a word for sun, and God doesn't use it here. He's like, yeah, it's just the greater light. Like, I made this. You're not going to worship this. It's just the greater light. I'm not even going to call it the sun, right? Um. Because that's not my notes, I'm totally lost now. Um, yeah, so all the other things in here, the, the goddesses of the Egyptian cosmology or creations of God, right? The air, the moisture, the earth. He upholds this. You don't have to worship those gods to uphold these things. God himself upholds it. And even if you don't worship him, he upholds it. Why? It's his creation. It's his creation. And that's a completely different worldview. That there's a God outside of creation who delights in it and upholds it and offers it to you versus there's a God who evolved out of creation and you have to worship just the right way or all things are going to fall apart. Oh, and in Egypt, only the pharaohs were the image of God. Who does it say is the image of God in Genesis chapter 1? Anybody? Jesus is the image of God, the ultimate image of God. Very good. Everyone. Men and women. So, right, verse uh, 127. So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Mankind, men and women, in the image of God. Now, we would say, oh, of course, men and women are in the image of God. They wouldn't have said that. That's not natural to them. In fact, the reason we say that now so naturally is because Genesis 127 is there. It's influenced Western culture now for centuries and centuries and centuries. 
He was doing battle with this worldview that said, we're not the image of God, only Pharaoh is the image of God. No, intentionally I create all people, men and women, in the image of God. Revolutionary in that culture. In the Mesopotamian origin stories, the place they were going, right, uh, they focused on the waters being chaotic and the sea monsters being these demonic god-like things and this, the creation account like, oh, no, no, I made those. You know what I'm saying? I made the, the great sea monsters. I made this. The spirit was hovering over the waters and I made this. The, um, the Enuma Elish has creation as a result of the gods fighting against each other and there's blood everywhere. Now the blood comes creation. I don't know if they believe that was literally how it happened, but that's the story. And, and God comes in with the, the creation account and says, I intentionally made things. See, I have great care about this creation. So that's what's happening. Let me step back for a little bit. In our current day, for the last couple hundred years, I think what's going on is sometimes even well-meaning critics of the Scripture will say, read Genesis 1 and say, this is the Bible doing modern science, and it's doing it wrong. And then... Likewise, well-meaning Christians will come and say, no, darn it, this is the Bible doing modern science, and it's doing it right. And show why. You can go to the Creation Museum and find that picture, right? Some good stuff there, but that's definitely saying the Bible's doing modern science the right way. And I just think it's a more helpful thing to recognize that what's going on in literature and say, this is not the Bible doing modern science at all. This is the Bible talking to an ancient people in a, in a refugee context this is who it's talking to. It's not talking to us. It's written for us, but not written to us. It's written to an ancient people within their framework of understanding. The Protestant reformers, so luminary theologians like Luther and Calvin and the like, said that God speaks baby talk to us. because Not because he's limited, but because we are. Right? He's massive and huge and has unlimited understanding, but he's got to communicate to me somehow. Right? And I'm not that way at all. I'm tiny. And so it's like God, it's like a parent leaning over the crib, over the cradle, and speaking baby talk to a, a, you know, a 14-month-old just so he or she can understand you a little bit. It's not that mom or dad are limited, though they are, but the little kid is limited. Right? I am. And so we speak in a way that accommodates their understanding. I was told by my mom that uh, when I was a little kid, I had what I called a mama dress. This is a blanket. Everybody has a blanket. Well, not everybody, but I had a blanket that I carried around all the time. For some reason, I called it a mama dress. Why? I have no idea. It wasn't my mom's dress. It wasn't even a dress. It was just a blanket. I had in my mind it was a mama dress. I know that, you know, we can question my, you know, masculinity. I don't know, but it's just the way it is. So I called it a mama dress. Do you know who else called it a mama dress? My mom and my dad. Why? Because that's what I understood it to be. So they were willing to speak in, to accommodate my lack of understanding that this is just some cotton piece of fabric, you know, not even call it a blanket. I've, I'm, apparently, some, at some point, they corrected my understanding. But uh, we're willing to step in and say, Roger, where's your mom address? Because you're not going to take your nap without it, that sort of thing. This is what God does. How, how else does an infinite God create, communicate to finite people? He must accommodate and speak within our frame of understanding. Uh, and you can, if you read through the Scripture, you will see that he never, though God does enter in and expand people's understanding of him, he does not do that of the world. 
He does not expand, like, he does not step into the 8th century B.C. and say, let me tell you about the Adam. He doesn't do, that's not how he communicates to finite people. He communicates in their frame of understanding. There are a few hints of this happening in this text. In verse 1, right, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. When we think about that in our worldview, we think about this blue globe spinning in outer space, seeing it from space. Oh, that's the earth. That is not what they were thinking about. Why? They didn't even know that. It's actually, the, the better translation is, in the beginning, God created the, the, the sky and the ground. That's what it's talking about. Why? It's from their perspective. In, um, in verse 6, again, I'm happy to talk about some of this stuff afterwards, but uh, the, the ancients conceived of the world as having water below. Why? Because water comes up from the ground. And water above. Why? Because water comes down from the sky. And what's below, in between that is a hammered dome or a, an expanse. The ESV here translates it heavens. It's just expanse. It means a hammered dome. Now, is that the way things are? No, we know it's not. But that was their conception of reality. So God steps into that and says, I separated the expanse. The expanse from the waters below and the water above. Right? It's like, it, yes, I made, the, I made the, the rain and I made the underground springs, but they're not going to get evaporation. So God steps in and speaks so they can understand. Let's put it this way. If Genesis 1 were delivered to us today as fresh revelation, perhaps the Lord would have used, you know, descriptions of things like quarks and electrons and dark matter and multidimensional understanding. Right? Because that's our worldview. He would have spoken into that. It still would be baby talk to God. Right? It, we're like, ooh, man, dimensionality is, boah, dark matter, 96% of the matter in the universe. We don't even understand it. Isn't that awesome? Aren't we, aren't we sophisticated? And the Lord's like, yo, no, not at all. What are you talking about? This is baby talk to me. I, this is the best I can do with your understanding, right? Now, we can compare ourselves to people 2000 BC and say, whoa, how far we've come. But compared to the Lord, we've come this far. If he accommodated to us to himself now, if he accommodated himself to us now, with all of our understanding, it would still be baby talk. Okay. Within their frame, so to an ancient people, within their frame of understanding, to communicate, this is my contention here, theological truth about historical events. These really, things really did happen. Creation really did happen. Adam and Eve are real. Sin is real. I mean, it's the most empirically verifiable reality in our world. Sin is real, right? Um, Eden's real. But there's an intention here for him to communicate the theological richness of it. We see some of it in the, the way that's even uh, constructed. If you look at the bottom right of your insert, I put this nifty graph in there. Think about verse 2. The earth is formless and empty, or formless and void. Top statement. And then what happens is for three days, God creates form. And for three days, in parallel, God fills each of those, those forms. Right? So it was formless and empty. Then he makes form, and he fills the emptiness. It's a very nice topical structure. Right? So day one, he creates light and dark. Day four, he creates the sun, and the moon, right? It's form fills it. 
Day two, creates the sea and sky. Day five, he creates the fish and birds, right? The stuff that goes in the sea and the sky. In day three, he creates the fertile earth. In day six, he, uh, he creates the, the land animals and man, that which goes into the earth. In day seven, he rests. So it's probably, my contention, probably not trying to communicate this is the exact order I created things in. He's giving a nice structure to things. Here's an example why we might think that. On day three, he creates the plants and fruit-bearing trees. Isn't that great? What's he create on day four? The sun. Does God not know modern science? Of course he does. That's not what he's communicating. He's putting a nice order of how he creates form and then how he fills the form, right? He's, why is he doing that? Because he's an orderly God. And creation for you people who were in slavery in Egypt and are now in the wild wilderness is not as chaotic as you think because it's ruled over by a sovereign king who orders everything for your good. And we know that because the pinnacle of creation is the sixth day. I put, if you notice as I was reading through there, the Hebrew changes when it talks about the days. Day one, two, three, four, and five says a day, a day, a day, a day, a day. Day six, it says the sixth day. It's the pinnacle. And that's the point God says it is very good. It was good, but come and see, it's very good. And then the seventh day of rest. Think about that. An enslaved people who hadn't had a day off in centuries that come into the wilderness. And God says, I've got great news for you. This six day of work and one day of rest cycle. And you're made in my image. And I'm showing that to you in creation. It's, it's, it's all the way down. You're made for that. So, again, I said I want, to, I want us to read perhaps... Genesis 1 with a little bit more dimensionality. Now, let me just step back and say, if it's very, we don't have to have the fight, right? If it's very important to you that you read Genesis as like six 24-hour days of 24 hours as we understand it, and God created things with like maybe an appearance of age, everything looks very old, um, that's fine. I, I don't think the text requires us to do that. You may believe that the days were unspecified lengths of time. That's fine. The te- it doesn't, it's not talking about this. Uh, so I don't, the text doesn't require us to believe that or not believe that. You may believe it's a, a sort of a framework ordered topically rather than Orderly, and I have to confess in full disclosure, that's what I lean to. You know, when you get ordained in the PCA, you're required to say, what is your, your creation belief? I, Framework hypothesis, that's me, check. Okay, fine. That's okay, right? I can say that because I believe that one. Um, with some hybridization of other things, right? Like, how about even this? You believe that God used some creative evolutionary processes in creating things? The text doesn't forbid you. This text doesn't preclude you from believing that. Okay? Now, if you're going to say, oh, and God wasn't, okay, he, things evolved on their own. God wasn't involved at all, and, you know, he wound up the universe and walked away from it. Well, then that's a problem, right? That's a, that's, that's, the text does preclude you from believing that, right? Um, 
he's, he's communicating theological realities of historical events. And so I think this is where I, I, I'm spending so much time on the background, right? We're not going to exegete the text really at all because I just don't think we have to fight this. And if you're, if you're a student, if you're going off to college, maybe you have friends like, I just can't, I just can't buy into the Scripture because it's giving this creation account and it's, I, don't really can't, I can't see it from there. You can feel free to tell them it's not doing modern science. Not because God doesn't know modern science, because it's written to people 2,000 B.C., and they're not asking questions about material origins. But it is revealing something about God. Like what? Okay. And this is maybe, maybe you explore this in your community groups or at home. Just a couple, couple things. Uh, behind, behind and before all things at the heart of the universe is a personal God. Personal. A God who created, before creation was a God who lived who lives, who loves, who laughs, who's in relationship, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The heart of the universe is not uh, impersonal reality, but a personal God. You can read the quote on the front of your bulletin from Francis Schaeffer to work out some of the implications of that. But a real personal God before creation. He is a powerful God. He creates by speaking. And you might say, you know what? I believe that, but I could never even imagine something like that. And the Scripture would say, you're wrong. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you're wrong. The reason you believe in Christ is because God himself has created in your life by speaking. The God who made light shine out of darkness, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, has shown in our light, life, our hearts, to give us the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. It is a creation miracle that you believe in Jesus if you believe in Jesus. That God who made light shine out of darkness did that. That's the creative power of this God. This is, I mean, we can say things and maybe somebody will rearrange something already in existence. Occasionally as a father, you get a win, you ask your kids to do something and they do it. Like, oh, I have creative power. We don't have creative power. They're just rearranging something that already existed, right? God creates out of nothing by speaking. Wow, why would we ever give up praying to a God like that? Is there something you've got in your life you're just like, oh, I think the Lord just doesn't care anymore. I just, I, I don't know if it's, too, if it's too big for him, if I don't understand things. Let's keep asking. Let's keep asking. This God who can create by speaking cares about you. He's powerful enough to do that. He's powerful enough to be concerned about each of you. I had a friend in college named Dave. We did ministry together. Dave suffered with migraines, and he would not pray for his migraines. Ridiculous. Why? Because the Lord has other things to deal with. He, he didn't want to bother God. Like, Dave, your God's just not big enough, man. Get on board with the real God. Right? This God is powerful enough to speak and create. He's powerful enough to care for the particularities of your life. And, oh, just a couple more things. He's generous. The surrounding stories of the Israelites one of the reasons God's, the gods creates, the gods create is so they can have slaves. That's us. This is not the creative nature of our God. He creates so we can have partners in this earth. He gives his image to us. We bear the image of God. As we're, in coming weeks, we'll see Taylor's going to preach in a couple weeks on sin. We, that, that image is broken, scarred, and marred. And in Jesus, we get the true image back. It costs him his life. 
but he comes to bring the true image back that we can live into the life we were originally designed for, the life Jesus died to give us. The sixth day comes back to us. So does the seventh day in which God rests and invites us to rest. So that when we hear words from Jesus like, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, a thousand hyperlinks should go off on our head back to the creation account and saying this is Jesus giving us what we were originally designed for. And finally, there's more here, but I'm going to stop. This is a delighting God. Like He saw that it was good. It wasn't like God's like, oh, I made this. Oh, it's good. Imagine that, right? It's, he enters into the delights to see a seeing, an intimate seeing, the goodness of it. This is a God who delights in his creation. That's why, as we're going to sing at the end of the service, he wins creation back. He comes for her to rescue her in her brokenness and need. Uh, at Thanksgiving, we were having dinner with the, the Purdy family. Some of you know the Purdy's, and their maybe nine-year-old Elizabeth was telling the story about uh, she, they have a train tracks outside of her house, their house, and uh, she was out playing, and she heard somebody uh, crying or yelling or moaning, and there was this guy, I don't know if he was inebriated or what, had been walking on the train tracks and had fallen, and he hit his head on the tracks, and he was laying on the tracks. And she was telling the story. I I went and told my daddy, James, and he saw the guy, and he ran, and there was a train coming, and he grabbed him off the tracks. And James was like, the train was like 15 minutes away. But it was, but she was so delighted in this story of rescue, right? It's so good to tell a story of rescue, to be part of a story of rescue. We are. We are part of a story of rescue, of a creation that he said is very good, and it was broken. He said, I'm not satisfied with that. I'm coming to get it. And that's why we're going to the communion table. He came to get get creation. He came to get us. Let's come and get him. Taylor, I'm going to have you lead us through that.